you are listening to Single Sirs. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Sirs is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Ian Chodikoff is an architect, editor, curator, and design strategist experienced in research, programming, marketing, business development, and strategy. He has led communications teams and projects that include learning platforms, exhibitions, publishing, workshops, and events. Ian has consulted with municipalities, real estate developers, and cultural organizations. He has also led a national architectural association in which he remains a fellow, directed a monthly architecture publication, led conference programming, and currently plays a leadership role for dynamic interdisciplinary architecture and urban planning firm. So thank you very much, Ian, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This is an honor. So can you start by telling us who you are and what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Sure, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. Um, I'd like to think of myself as a, a synthesizer of ideas within the design profession. Uh, I like to think of myself as someone who can speak the different languages spoken by, let's say, an engineer versus an architect versus an interior designer. And uh, what I do is uh, develop and uh, consolidate strategy for communication, business development, and marketing um, for firms. That's pretty clear and succinct. Um, so the conversation for today, where we're gonna, going to talk about the image in architecture. When you use the word image in the context of architecture, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, that, that's a very, very good question. And I think it's a uh, It's one of those questions that are not always easily answered by firms that seek to project their image. What is it? What is their image to the world? Um, Kevin Lynch developed, uh, came up with this term. He was an urban planner in the 60s that talked about the imageability of cities. It's not you know, technically a word, but it really, what you derive is that is what do you, if you were to close your eyes or walk away when someone says, you know, firm X, what do you think of them? What is their reputation? What is their level of cultural acumen? How good a designer are they? Or how good are they with engaging community? And so when I talk about the image in the context of architecture, you know, what is it, uh, whether it's a building or really a design practice, what is the image that the public uh, sees when they hear or see their work? Mm -hmm. So if we go back to the idea of imageability uh, from Kevin Lynch, is that what he meant by that? Is that just a, a neologism used to describe what you just talked about? Well, I mean, uh, it, it's been a little while since I've uh, known the exact words, but but he really, uh, for him, it's sort of the city has an identity um, and, and has an identity. You know, cities are in competition with each other, Los Angeles versus San Francisco, you know, Paris versus Lyon or Frankfurt. Mm -hmm versus London. Um, it's pretty clear about the imageability of that city. What is that? What does, when someone thinks of Copenhagen, they think of bike lanes. There's an image, that's the imageability of the city. That's what the, the identity of, of that kind of ecosystem. So he, he was referencing it in much broader terms than when I talk about the image, it's really, 
is that firm a corporate firm or is it a boutique firm? Is that firm, you know, really amazing at very tactile design solutions? Or is that firm really about in, uh, allowing its users to co-opt it, uh, the, its, its design over time? Like a public building would be an example of a building that could be co-opted by the users over time. And, and so that's the imageability of that building. It's, it could be messy or gritty, or it could be, you know, sultry, sultry and smooth as some new boutique shop, you know, in Yorkville. So why is the image uh, so critical for architecture firms? I mean, I think it's critical, uh, I guess, from a, from a, um, a competition analysis or a marketability, marketability of that firm, like to know, okay, like Arno's firm tackles these kinds of design problems and, that's, and we see the results that he achieves. And so I think that's useful. So if someone was to say, you know, I have a really tough design problem that I need Arno to resolve. I know how he would go about doing it. And I think um, it, it's not quite the same as saying what style a firm has, because that's a whole other discussion we, that is much more, um, yeah, especially on interiors or certain types of bespoke housing. We know the kind of hand that goes into designing a particular kind of house. But I, I, I think that, the image is uh, is a more of a broader um, idea that encompasses the tactics and strategies of how a design firm solves a design problem. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it, it sounds like it almost has more to do with, um, while being a bit different from, but still being very much linked to the the firm's positioning and, and how they portray themselves to the world as to what their expertise and specialty is. I think so. I mean, I, for all intents and purposes, whether you choose your firm or my firm, both of our design team will make sure the roof doesn't leak. Mm -hmm. Generally so, speaking, yeah. Generally speaking, but yeah, we're both going to be competent. We'll both get the job done. So what's going to make the difference between the client perceived value about your firm versus our firm? Obviously, you might charge more than me or vice versa, and maybe that might have a factor. But I think when it comes down to it, it's really, uh, you know... Uh, Can you do something understated? Can you do something that uh, changes over time? Can you do something that's much more um, environmentally motivated and, and for a post-carbon future? Uh, can you design a building that engages the entire stakeholder community if it's a sensitive community center in Toronto? You know, so, so certain firms have that knack of to resolve these types of problems and certain firms are better doing a gorgeous home up in Muskoka. And that's an image of that firm. Yeah. And, and I think it touches on uh, what I've been yelling about on rooftops for years that most firms really don't have a clear differentiated image, if we use your term, um, in the public's eye. And that's why most firms have to compete on price because they're not differentiated enough. They don't have enough of a, an image that distinguishes them from the competition to be able to charge what they want or need to charge. Um, does that, does that ring a bell to you? Absolutely. You know, and I, as you're saying that, you know, I could, I could hear a lot of pr uh, principals and firms going, well, we've been trying to get that public library for many years. That would, if we got, if we got that public library, people would really understand how we're going to design for a, um, for a community in Malvern or a community in Scarborough or something or, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, there are many other things firms can do to add value to their image. And that is maybe get involved with certain boards, do certain charity work, um, 
do you know ha- have some exposure to helping a community set up a garden or a farmer's market. These may not be specifically project related, but it sets out a precedent for the kind of philosophy that the firm engenders. When you start to look on websites uh, and something we do all the time, it's like, how are the people conveyed? Are the staff pictures even there? Or do they have a very artificial photo of a staff member holding up a mountain bike another one holds up a golden doodle and it's supposed to be like a very work-life balanced kind of joint is that really value for recruitment do, do young hires believe in that do clients appreciate that maybe maybe not but you know some firms that 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 are um, you know you can see that are much that, that, that posit themselves as urban-minded firms seeing them, out there helping communities is really uh, is a golden ticket and it's a way to, to project your image without necessarily having that public library under your belt that you're striving to build because that's you know a lot of young firms try and get out of that it's hard to get out of that realms because of procurement and rfps and interview process and maybe the bench strength of your firm it might be small and so the client's not going to take a chance on you and maybe the market it currently is very busy but it's still risk averse so um, what can you do to enhance your image without necessarily waiting for you that moment when you get that gorgeous community library? Yeah, or do speculative projects or, uh, or there's so many ways that are more more inspired by, by guerrilla marketing that firms can put themselves on the map. I think the speculative project still works because a client of mine have done, has done a few of those in the last couple of years. And every time it's gotten them in the Globe and Mail and a bunch of other outlets. So it may not get them that, that, um, that big project they're looking at, but it certainly puts them on the map. And I know for a fact, I'm pretty sure that they've gotten work as a result of that exposure, even if it's not the work they were presenting to the world. Yeah. So there are ways to kind of bypass the traditional, oh, I got to fill out RFPs uh, till the cow comes home and hoping I get this job to to kind of get ahead of the competition. I think it's the firms that are smarter about that. And the ones that are kind of do it intuitively. They don't have to be told. So um, I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a very uh, kind of community, uh, almost intuitive way of putting yourself on the map. And then there's following everybody else's lead. And I think following everybody else's lead is the wrong way to do it because then you're competing with a whole bunch of firms that are trying to do exactly what you're doing. I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, our firm... Uh, we do. Uh, we obviously do a lot of real work. It keeps people very busy, uh, and uh, but and this is very important work where where we do. But we uh, some of the work we do um, takes time to bake. Uh, it takes time to finish, uh, and we feel that we take that thought leadership and try and distill it down to the, those speculative projects because they they help engender a discourse. And um, you're, you're right. We find that. Um, when it gets out there, uh, people uh, appreciate it. Uh, it helps with the the um, discussion about architecture and design in the city. That more than just a transactional basis, um, and it, it also um, certainly is able for people like our team to flex their thought leadership muscle on issues of affordability, of equity in the city, of um, technical innovation. So there's a lot of facets that you can do uh, with speculative work that will help you. Um, leverage the knowledge that you've been gaining 
even if there's not a project that will necessarily distill and manifest it, certainly the speculative work can achieve that. Mm -hmm. So in your mind, is there a way to um, kind of classify or, or, or define the different kinds of images that firm projects or even images of, of projects themselves? Um, do you have like kind of a, a way to sort that out in your mind? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, I think a, a, one of the interesting things about our firm is very smart about developing these research committees or research engines. Uh, and and um, so what are those? Those would be, I mean, for us, uh, there's issues of housing, uh, the thinking about uh, the post-carbon future, so environmental sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also, we have a, a strong uh, community that helps permeate through the work that we do internally and externally, the sort of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. Uh, and we have biodiversity. But I think the how I would, you know, for, for others to, to kind of break that down is you kind of go, okay, well, what are the big issues that are that, that clients want to resolve these days? And what can we do to help our clients achieve that? And it's not really rocket science. And there's obviously building rege the regenerative design. So sustainability. Um, there's issues of, of community. So those are the social issues that, that surround your work. And uh, then there's issues of um, if your firm touches on landscape or on a, on a larger scale, there's, there's the whole, how do you build better ecosystems or how does the built environment interact with the natural environment? So, you know, it's people, environment, you know, material and innovation is a big thing um, for especially uh, smaller firms. It's wonderful if you're doing a lot of material investigation and you're doing smaller projects that are really trying out new technologies. So I think those are areas that you can kind of hone in on. And, and uh, within those headings, you can uh, nurture some bite-sized thought leadership pieces that will only contribute to your how your prospective client sees you. And uh, yeah. And so how to, because you guys put out a lot of thought leadership from what I can tell. Um, and I think more so than most, if not all of the firms that you're at least the ones you're competing with. How does that impact um, the firm first in terms of image and then in terms of how much work it gets? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very good question because, um, uh, you know, I was speaking, I was at last night with a friend of mine who's a, a principal of a very large firm here in Toronto and he's, and they have offices across North America. And, um, you know, they, you can very easily burn a lot of money in your research. So mm -hmm. research is not always the panacea for, for, you know, achieving work. Uh, we all recognize that our firm recognizes it, his recognizes it. So you have to be careful when you, when you kind of, uh, plow that, plow that investment into, um, research because it could be more expensive than going after bad RFPs. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and often it, it, um, you also don't want to um, subsidize. You don't want to give stuff away for free. You don't want to just say, oh, look, um, you know, madam developer, look at this fabulous thought leadership we have. We can save you some money and they take it. Thank you very much. And go to a firm that's cheaper and doesn't do research. So, so you have to watch that input where, how that comes back to the firm. I think for us, um, one thing it, it does right away is uh, improves morale and, and gets people motivated and excited about the work that we do. Um, that's certainly a, a huge direct benefit. Another benefit is it, it helps with, uh, you know, gain trust. So I think in some ways, um, 
you know, they, it's almost not what the work does, but how is the work received? And so when someone client looks, well, we may not, you know, see a direct value in that research you did, Mr. Chodakoff, but we love the firm. You guys are obviously full of a lot of gearheads, gearheads and visionaries. We want to hire you. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, so you've been in the industry for some time now. How have things changed or evolved over the past 20 years and specifically in terms of like the image and how people market themselves? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Sometimes I wonder how I managed to be in this industry for so long. Um, always a big note to, uh, yeah, you, uh, I think it's changed in the sense that um, nothing is to be taken for granted. I mean, I guess when I started the, the industry, we, in the industry, we were in a recession. It was hard for folks like my age to even get work. Mm -hmm. it, was, uh, it was a struggle. Um, and then, you know, the economy picked up and turned around. But um, as I was, you know, coming out of school, a lot of firms really took a devastating hit in the late 90s um, with the economy or especially firms that put all their money in one market. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe um, that has changed um, for a variety, some reasons, but it used to be, you know, a firm would only be doing social housing or a firm would only be doing condos or um, retail. So I think firms are much more capable of diversifying even at all scales. Uh, the larger firms, uh, obviously in the last 20 years, it's been a, a huge amount of consolidation. So um, firms have, you know, in order to harvest the market or harvest sectors within the market, they, uh, you see a lot of the, uh, you know, like firms like Dialogue and Canon and Perkins and Will and others that you have to um, buy up other firms so that you can say that you did a library in the last six months, that you did a hospital in the last year at a certain scale or size. And that competition for those kinds of projects are, uh, has certainly increased. And so firms needed to, you know, buy up one another and merge. And that, that's something that's interesting because they, uh, doing so, they're, you're hedging your bets both in markets and in sectors. So that's one thing that's changed. Another thing I think that is the smaller firms are much more uh, capable of um, finding more interesting collaborative work because the, uh, the nature of um, networking has been facilitated. You can collaborate with someone in Europe much more easily than you could 20 years ago. And it's not just because of, of well, maybe because of the internet, but the internet allows you to find like-minded people more quickly. Um, always technology, I believe. It's not the technology, it's the people that technology brings together. And I think that has enabled new things to happen. And, and I think the also the, the, um, the gap between manufacturing and design is narrowed and has allowed smaller design firms to do furniture or lamps or other specialty um, equipment in a building that may not have been so tenable 20 years ago, but with different methods of manufacturing and collaboration, um, that's now more uh, readily achievable. Mm -hmm. um, so how would your variety of experiences from architect and urban planner to uh, event organizer and magazine editor shaped your, your opinion on architecture marketing? Um, well, at, at times it might have made me more cynical, <laughs> but I shouldn't be saying that. Um, but you know, in all seriousness, uh, it, it has allowed me to, to really meet the diversity of practitioners that are out there. Um, 
it's really uh, quite extraordinary, the energy and imagination that happens at all generations of designer, all backgrounds of designers. Uh, and so, you know, certainly my, my career sort of showed me that kind of all bets are off that, you know, um, and, and, and you almost kind of see, I don't know why this Virgil Abloh kind of comes into, into mind where he was sort of trained as architect and becomes a fashion designer. And I don't know if he would be the iconic image of how the profession has changed, but the culture of architecture and design is blurred. You know, we've always, architects have always taken influence from so many other creative um, pursuits, whether it's the visual arts, film, or music. Mm-hmm. But it seems that that kind of academic influence has now become realistic influence uh, in, in, in the way people practice. And so... Um, through my exposure to the, this range, and, I, and I've been blessed by meeting architects from all over the world uh, um, and all backgrounds, or most of the backgrounds, and we can't say all the backgrounds, but certainly under you know, uh, minorities, underrepresented uh, architects, architects of color, architects, indigenous architects, women, uh, different, you know, seeing the leadership capacities change about what is leadership in the profession too has, has, has given me um, a lot of food for thought and a lot of a lot of excitement because um, when I started it really it was much more of a narrow focus about what it means to be the star architect the master builder the generalist those that kind of verbiage doesn't seem to apply anymore it seems to be much more entrepreneurial and socially motivated and that is very exciting to me yeah, I, I can see that because when I was in school about 20, when I started school about 20 years ago, architecture school, that is, um, you know, the big names, the, the aspiration were still the um, the Frank Gehry's and Rem Koolhaas and Tom Maynard's of the world. That was the kind of aspiration to be. And I think and I have no uh, actual evidence of that, but based on what I, I see around the industry, it seems like this has waned a little bit and there's more of a diversity of, um, it's almost like the internet has democratized design in a way where you don't have to be a superstar architect to gain traction. If you have a decent project or, or a cool idea, the internet might give you a break and, uh, and push you to the forefront. Um, I mean, you have it, requires an incredible amount of luck too because good work is not the only uh, parameter that needs to be fulfilled but i think there's more of a democratization of access to the public as an architect than there ever was yeah i mean uh, you bring up some interesting points and i don't profess to have all the answers but you know it used to be you were published in a particular magazine print Mm -hmm. if you had a monograph print maybe you had a exhibition in real life mm-hmm. if you made it to the serpentine gallery as a designer or the venice being out like there are certain sort of touch points that would be your that you on your bucket list to become your superstar architect and uh some of those are still very important and, and still remain and in fact i guess they all do to some degree but you can do a lot without having you can do a lot to circumvent that if you don't make it if you don't think you make it of course the challenge is you can get a lot of B plus architects out there, meaning the ones that just reside under the A level, the so-called A level. You can get a lot of B plus mm-hmm. architects, or maybe even the, the B minus ones that aren't even building anything, but they can 
they can put a hell of a show on their on their landing page for their website. But what have they done for the society lately? They have some ideas, but it's not realized. There's no real clients. They haven't really been tested by many by, by builders. So you know, it's kind of like so many other things on me in, with the last twenty years with social media and the internet. What is real? What is fake? What is your is your imageability? Back to that issue. Is it a big bubble of nothingness, or do you have a lot to back it up? And then there are also a lot of people that do amazing work and have very little presence on the web. Um, but it's so sometimes you know I, we all look at images now and is that real? Is that a rendering or did that get built? And if it did get built, are they? Is it on a perfect day when there's no people or no cars or the first day it was open, but not five years later? Where's the grittiness? So um, yeah, that's an issue. Um, I remember when when I was in school, like towards the end of my studies, that, that was a dozen or so years ago. I spent a lot of time on blogs like Art Daily at the time, um, and then I started realizing that they put a lot of unbuilt projects on there. So basically renderings. And after seeing a couple of those uh, uh, first before built, being built, so as a rendering online and then the project being built later on and being highly disappointed in um, the finished project, not living up to the expectations of the renderings, I really became skeptical of um, looking at renderings online because they're always very sexy, obviously. But to, to the reason I'm saying this is because to the, your point of like maybe B plus or even B minus architects can make a splash online. But I think for anyone who knows the industry and has been around long enough, um, it's very easy to see through that. Even with beautiful pictures of a finished project, I certainly, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a bit biased because I look at projects day in and day out and I photograph them too. But I can look at pictures of a project, even if I haven't seen it in person, and almost instantly gauge the quality of um, the building itself, like how well detailed it is, how well built it was. Um, uh, so I think if, if you look at that long enough, you can't really fool anyone. You might fool a general public who doesn't know about architecture and there could be a danger in there because they're the ones who are gonna hire you. Um, but I think there's still something to be said about long-term reputation and if you do, too much work that doesn't live up to the expectations for whatever reason, that's going to catch up to you at some point. Um, you only get so many free passes before your reputation is destroyed. Right. Um, and I think that le le leads us to an interesting point uh, over the, uh, the reality of social media and its influence on the architecture industry. Um, can you explain in your mind, the, uh, the myths and realities of social media for the uh, for a design firm, right? Well, I think this is a this is a, a tough question again. You know, I sound like the Economist that says, "Well, it depends." <laughs> but but I think um, these are things we discussions we have a lot, but both internally and you know with my colleagues, is that um, you know the, the key to a successful design platform is is you know, it has to be consistent. You have to deliver consistent content over your platforms day in and day out. That's a bit of a churn. And uh, in that, that pressure to be consistent, sometimes you're just throwing a past project, a current project and stuff out. And you're just putting stuff to fill, fill the air. So you shouldn't necessarily be doing that. Um, I think the, the um, myths are like, you know, sometimes the, the, I mean, LinkedIn and it's different than, 
Instagram, which is different than Twitter, and, and all of them have their own characteristics. And I think they all have their own value. That um, you know, Instagram t- still trends younger, but Instagram is uh, um, much more um, effective, I think, for firms that are their work. I don't want to say their work is commodified or product because I don't want to sound that sounds patronizing. But if you're doing you know sexy interior, sexy retail. You know, you've got a lot of pro. You can just take a cool photo of a light. You can take a photo of a handrail. You can take a photo. You know, those things work well on on Instagram because people kind of get a gist in a very ta- like small, tangible items. Mm-hmm. The larger, ineffable things of public buildings, for example, universities, hospitals, um, you know, community centers. That's harder to convey in an exciting way on Instagram or even on social media generally. What it does do. Um, you know, Instagram is really good for, for conveying the culture of a, of a firm. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's one aspect too. So if you're, you know, obviously again, small jewel like projects um, go very well on, on social because they're quick and digestible. Um, and, but cultural things uh, work well. Some firms, you know, put a lot of photos of their team on site, or maybe their team has these sort of parties or events and, and those things can work well. And then, you know, other, other platforms are much more good, much more, um, effective at conveying policy elements, housing affordability, sustainability. Those are those are prime examples of that. So many of my colleagues, they do a presentation, they do a conference, they do a talk. In, in COVID, you can be doing five conferences in five different cities in one day. It's very easy, but you know because you can just do it all virtually, and you can project that out onto 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 LinkedIn uh, and other and on your website to kind of um, prove your chops in terms of a particular facet of the work that you're doing. I think you can achieve some success with that. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, these are, these are things it's, it's, it is a communication board. It's a good way to, to, it is a mouthpiece. Uh, but I guess it's always important to be authentic because sometimes these you're sending out messages and it's kind of, sometimes it can be kind of normative too. Like, well, so what if you're doing geothermal, isn't everyone? Well, so what if you're, you know, achieve lead, you know, used to, people used to joke about achieving lead gold. Like, so what if you've achieved lead gold? I mean, and I think you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I have a hunch that this is generally true. Um, I think most people and firms alike get on social media without really thinking about what that will do for them or what's the purpose of getting on social media. Because let's, let's be frank, we've all been at that point where, you know, everybody gets on Instagram and then you feel left out. So you're going to get on Instagram. And I remember my Instagram started just posting pictures of food and my new bike and whatever stupid stuff that no one cares about 12 years ago, like way, way, way back when it started. Um, but I think when people get more serious about social media and they start spending a lot more time and resources to like strategize and curate the content that's going to be on there. One of the questions that they rarely ask themselves is, why should we be on this platform to begin with? What is it going to do for us? And I think there's a bit of a rat race happening on social media, especially with Instagram, like the more visual ones, because everybody's on there. So people think there's a huge network effect of people think, oh, if everyone is on there, I will. I need to be on there too, without really questioning the reason why. And I think that's an issue with a lot of firms uh, endeavor on social media, because I don't know that it necessarily, some firms clearly benefit from it, and have become masters at it. So there's no question it can be useful. But I think too many firms just do that and they kind of do half-asset to do what their friends do, but not really 
make sure that it serves them. Uh, and I know this is just an example of one, but I've, I haven't been on social media except for LinkedIn for over two years now. And it hasn't affected my bottom line. As a matter of fact, I made more money uh, since I stopped being on social media than I had before. So it's not necessarily an argument to say, well, I have to do it for my marketing. It's like, what kind of results do you get out of it? It's a real question. And if that doesn't serve you, why are you on there? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's, that's key. I think the, you know, the website is your basis. Um, yeah, I, the website is the brochure everyone needs to have. That's yeah. kind of a given. When, when your client goes Googling, um, they're going to go, uh, well, they're going to be looking for you, hopefully, on the website. Um, and, and Instagram uh, or any social media platform, they, they all have, I think, you just have to be clear about what kind of audience are you going after. You know, because again, like if you're if you're a larger firm and you need, you know, you, you need to recruit people, you need to be on the on 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 new young hires radar. Social media is a good good. You know why not? Um, if you're yeah, and and I have a friend who's a, a fairly medium sized interior design firm principal, and the, the only reason they have an Instagram account is for recruitment purposes. Yeah. So they know that. Yeah. Some people are very clear on that. And, and some some social media platform like if, or if you're a type of build you're, um, you might be involved with um, yeah, the cultural industry and you're in, involved with museums and you do like, there's certain things that it's it, your work might tie there might be an aspect to your work that will tie into other discussions online and I think that's a fair assessment let's say you do like retail would be a good example it's often very specialized lighting applications and specialized mm -hmm. hardware and linking that to a broader discussion is useful. Um, you know, like for ourselves when we're dealing with transit or with housing, I mean, we want to be part of that larger conversation because we're, we're players in that market and we need to uh, assert ourselves in that online discourse. So, so whether it's, you know, so comments online, Twitter and LinkedIn are, are very helpful because we're engaging with city planners or municipal bureaucrats who tend not to maybe be so visual, they may be more policy oriented. So we want to be part of that discussion. So whether your discussion is through text or visuals, just understand what what's your what kind of conversation do you want to be part of? I think is is maybe a, a good question, good place to start. Yeah. So if you think of it in terms of like, if you were to do a, a media campaign to promote a project, if you did it well, you're gonna really think about the kind of publications you want to target, and you're gonna write your media kit specifically to target those publications. So I think when it comes to marketing, it has to be the same thing. It's like, if you think, if you're thinking about getting on social media, if you're not already on there, or even if you're already on there, the real question is, is your, the audience you're targeting on those platforms? Right. Um, so if you're, if you're uh, a high end or even a mid range inter residential interior designer, and all you do is like houses between two and $5 million, um, uh, of the property value, then you know that your target's probably on Pinterest, maybe on things like house, maybe a little bit on Instagram. But so the platforms you're going to target are different from if you're a company that does large institutional projects where you're probably more likely to target your the proper audience on LinkedIn, um, in trade magazines, places where the property managers or the, the building managers hang out, things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes we've all been there where, you know, you might, your campaign might be really a target five people that you might be able to identify by name. 
and you want to, you almost want to know where, where do they hang out? Mm-hmm. Like, it'd be, you could get very uh, granular and drill down to that level. Um, oh yeah. Know. And I would say be creative too, because if you know that person X goes to that restaurant every day, maybe the best approach is to go hang out at that restaurant and approach them in person. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Or, or, um, you know, you see a lot of, uh, if you want to do cultural buildings, uh, go hang out at the art fairs. Mm-hmm. You want to do, uh, yeah. So, uh, if you want to go, you know, th- that's a whole other aspect of, of marketing. Uh, I remember uh, a few years ago, I was doing some, some consulting work with a healthcare firm and, you know, I showed up at a healthcare conference. I was the only architect in the room. So uh, it was how many leads did you get out of this? I got a couple of leads. It was remarkable, and and uh, I'm I certainly was uh, do not profess to be a healthcare expert, but uh, as an architect, we can uh, uh, translate uh, issues into a visual solution more readily than someone who's not an architect you know that's sort of what we do and uh just by being there it was appreciated because you know you're in the healthcare profession and you're, and you're planning facilities uh you don't know who to turn to you don't know what's out there you don't know where to start yeah. and, and and i think that's a telling example because uh, an acquaintance of mine is both a licensed architect and an md and she's been fighting for years to connect the two worlds because her her whole thesis is that they're too disconnected and that's why a lot of medical buildings don't work very well. Um, and uh, it's she's probably the only one in the world and maybe one of a handful that has that kind of education. So it speaks a lot to having the ability to 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 zig when everybody else is zags and uh, and and see opportunities where no one else sees them. Right. Uh, I think that's a very valuable lesson. Um, because you've been in this industry and especially looking at marketing for so long, are there um, some particularly egregious mistakes that you see firms making over and over when they market themselves that you can pinpoint? Um, yeah, it's hard to um, things that pop out. Uh, it's often uh, the, the case of the on time, on budget. I mean, while we're hiring you, to be on time and on budget, you say you're going to be on time and on budget. Yeah. It's like, you know, to market that you, when someone says, oh, can we have a three o'clock appointment and you're going to market yourself? I always show up at my three o'clock appointments. You know, it's not, it's not great. And you can do better than that. Um, there's a lot of the, then that sort of stating of the obvious. And I think um, people pick up on these, a lot of the jargon. And so you're afraid not to use it again. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be the outlier and, and a lot of firms have that attitude. Um, the idea of a, tr- of a multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary, pluridisciplinary um, firm. Uh, yeah, it's useful. I think that's important to show that you're, but by nature we are, if we don't have those ex- that expertise in house, then we work with them through our, you know, consultant base. So it, it, that's a bit of a, I find that a little bit of a weak statement. Yeah. So maybe the more egregious I've, thing. I've written a few of those very generic paragraphs that basically summarize 90% of what the architecture firms say on their website, where a full service, multidisciplinary, diverse uh, group of architects who designs buildings. Like, I mean, this is a gross exaggeration, but those kinds of things, yeah, don't stand out because everybody else is saying them. So I think it's a very yeah. important thing to remember. It's a hard thing, and but that's a hard thing to sometimes, you know, the, 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 the um, it's a hard thing. I don't blame 
partners or leadership for being afraid to drop it. Why not? Well, because I'm not, (laughs) I'm being kind, but the thing is, is that it's, it's, um, you know, you're competing, it's brinkmanship. You feel like, oh, if I take my hand off the button and say I'm not multidisciplinary, people are going to think I'm not multidisciplinary and they're going to go to the next guy. So don't don't clients not even know what multis, they probably don't even know what that means, do they? Well, you know, I mean, some do. I mean, awesome clients are are pretty sophisticated. So, but, you know, they, but listen, they can always hire a couple of people, you know, they don't need to, um, but smaller projects, it's useful to have certain in-house services, depending on what it is. Uh, I know like SVN is very unique in that we're, um, we're a pretty intensive planning operation and we are an architecture firm. Uh, there are not too many firms that can stay stick and say that. So we can stick handle um, difficult projects through uh, the approvals process and get them built mm-hmm. uh, with a higher degree of confidence than our competition because you know they don't have that multidisciplinary component. But to call ourselves, you know, so so I think that that is something that we are um, very proud of. And I think it's it's an achievement. So I think it's a it's a bona fide statement to say that we're we are a multidisciplinary firm. Uh, that being said, I just think that the term or that that direction um, can sometimes lead to a, a the client may not be able to distinguish our multidisciplinary firm next to the other multidisciplinary firm. So we have to you know take next steps to really clarify that for our client, and we do do that you know through through uh, through other other means that 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 try and um, leverage our tactical muscle. Yeah. And I think it's important to say that being multidisciplinary is not a bad thing at all. If anything, it's an asset. But when everybody else is trying to claim that as their superpower, then it not it's not a superpower anymore. You'll have to present yourself in a different way that may still touch on the fact that you're multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary, mm-hmm. but um, also presents you, portrays you as uh, different from the competition. I think that's the key. So uh, yeah, I think it's just not the first thing necessarily you should put on your website because, and I've done that exercise where you go look at a few dozen websites, if not hundreds. And I know people who've done that with thousands of architecture websites. I don't know how they've had the patience to do that, but if you did that, and, I, and I've done a similar exercise where you go to a few dozen websites and look at kind of the keywords and you quickly start seeing the ones that repeat themselves all the time, multidisciplinary, diverse, whatever. Um, it's not to say these are bad things. I think it's just not the first thing clients should see because if you're going to look at 10 architects who do what you do and they see the same thing on all the, the landing pages, then they say, I, in their mind, it's like, I can't tell them apart. And so the best way to tell them apart is on price. So the cheaper one will always get the job. Yeah. It, it always comes down to that. So it's not necessarily that you don't want to be those things. It's that you want to present yourself in a different way that makes you stand out as unique. And, you know, I've talked a lot to advertising people and especially on this podcast, because um, I think there's a lot of really good lessons about marketing to be learned from advertising. Uh, and most advertising is total shit, um, 90% of it. And there's a number of reasons for that, but occasionally you'll see a very creative ad come out and usually they're funny or quirky or some variation thereof. Or some of them can be like really emotional. That works too, like tearjerkers almost. Um, but the ones that are effective at keeping X brand or brand X on top of your mind are the ones that stand out one way or another. Um, 
and they're usually also very effective commercially. The, one of the best examples is the Snickers campaign they ran a few years ago when you're not you when you're hungry. And I think the first commercial of that series was uh, people playing rugby. And then um, all of a sudden, one of them gets knocked to the ground and turns into um, a famous old actress that just died this last year. She was already old at the time. And then she eats the Snickers and then turns back into this young, healthy, energetic man. man. Yeah, it was Betty White. Betty White, that's right. Bless her. Yeah. And and those were great. I hate Snickers. I would never buy one of those. But it, the fact that I remember it and the reality is that it also increased their bottom line. They sold more Snickers after those campaigns than they ever had before. Yeah. So um, I think there's a true value commercially in standing out. It's just that too many people are afraid of it. Yeah, it's hard. I think because uh, it's you want to build trust and building trust with the client because the work we do is you know we have to embed ourselves with the clients. You know, clients taking a chance on us, and mm-hmm. if it's a, it's a, if it, if they're building their own home, it's probably the most expensive thing they've ever done in their lives. If it's a, an individual, if it's an institution, they it, it could, you know, it could have huge effects on fundraising. So there's a lot of that's a lot on the line. So um, I think um, it's very easy to kind of drop some of the humor and be very uh, serious and trust based. But I think to your point, like to stand out. Like you, you have to, you have to kind of present your differentiator. I mean, candy bars is sort of hard to present your differentiator. I mean, and in architecture, we talked about, well, we're a multidisciplinary firm, uh, which SVN is like, how do you project that? But don't sound like it's cliche or platitude. Um, How do you build trust without conveying arrogance? How do you, you know, and and that's uh, another thing. um, And I know like anecdotally, I've been on a lot of selection committees and juries over the number of years and, Sometimes when the architect comes in and sits at the edge of the table after he's, you know, giving his talk in front of the board and kind of, you know, casually sitting there going, you know, Arno, we'll build your res- student residential dorm. We'll build it on time, on budget, you know, whatever you want to say. We've got a multidisciplinary office. We'll do a great job. And the client might get scared because it's almost arrogant because it's kind of like, yeah, what are you not even listening to us? Mm-hmm. And uh, versus... You know, I've heard that, you know, that particular project, it went to another firm and I know the client said, you know, we chose this other firm because they came to us as we actually don't know what we're going to do because we haven't talked to anybody. We haven't talked to the community. We haven't talked to the students. We haven't fully fleshed it out with you. We don't know, mm-hmm. but we're set up to listen. You know, we're set up to kind of go through the process and we're pretty confident that when we go through that process, we'll come up with, with a solution that will benefit everyone. And this is a very, you know, I mean, it kind of turns the conversation around. I, I you know, not to sound, um, try to toot our own horn. I know SVN kind of touts itself as listen first. That's a big thing for the firm, big tenant. And, um, you know, it could sound kind of cheesy, but it's kind of important. Because if you are arrogant, like that's a trust breaker. Like that's not good. No one likes an arrogant person on the first date. No one likes to hire an architect who's arrogant. Our architects are arrogant enough as they are, as we are. So, you know, with me, uh, we need to, uh, so, so that trust is, is important. So maybe, you know, the trust, if you eat that Snickers bar, you'll remember who you are all along. Um, so if you're an architect that listens first, uh, maybe your client will feel like, you know, that you will see them for who they are. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And it's not actually not that hard once you learn how to do it properly to ask questions and just listen. Because all you got to do is ask 
you can learn everything you know about a potential client by asking four, five, maybe six questions. That's all you need to do. And then the conversation will go from there, but that's all you need to start with. And that reveals so much more about your clients, which gives you the knowledge as a, as a service provider, you need to be able to offer a solution that suits them. Um, obviously, there's a lot more that goes into designing buildings for clients, but as a starter conversation, that's really all you need. And I think in the industry, there would be it would be beneficial if people said things about themselves less and demonstrated it more in their actions. So instead of saying you're multidisciplinary, maybe it's time to think about how you can show that to your client through your actions. So instead of sending the principal architect to a meeting with the clients, maybe you send a team of people, and that could include the, the, the architect, but to show that actually it's important for that portion of the team to be there because they need to know about the client too, or they can't design a building otherwise. Um, and that's just a silly example. Maybe that's not the right way to do it, but just to to think about how to do things differently that will make you appear as if you're not just trying to get a job, but you genuinely care about doing good work for that client. And that will come with fees and profit and whatever. Obviously, everybody needs that. Yeah. But um, uh, list, more listening, I, I certainly think that would be a great, great asset to a, a great many firms. I, mean, I think that, that's a, a really important part. It makes me think of... Um, some of these firms where on their website, it's really just the two partners mm-hmm. and everyone else. And yeah. you can go, well, like, is that partner going to be answering my call or email at 10 o'clock at night when I'm worried about something? Mm-hmm. Can I trust that partner that's looking all glam to answer my calls? Or do I want to know that there's a whole team that's going to back me up? So, yeah. um, I guess what's part of me trying to build off what you're saying is like, do you, you want to project um, a sense that there's not just one person there's like that, you know, there could be dozens that can back you up and having that teamwork, having that relationship. I think that's a, that's a strong selling feature. And I think a lot of firms miss that opportunity to project that, that kind of dialogue that you Mm -hmm. engage with when you hire an architect. The myth is there's never just one person. And sometimes the person who claims to be behind the the masterpiece is not even doing any work, you know? They're just basically lending their name to it. So, um, yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, again, I always remember once on a... It was a very, very large uh, public building and uh, was on the selection committee. I was consulting with the sort of... They had kind of a... It's a nice way to... The way they handle it, it was almost like a mini competition. They sort of paid along the way and invited... Mm-hmm. We had a series of interviews and, you know, one architect firm, very high profile, didn't get the job because the principal was saying, you know, I'm working on this big project. I'm working on that project. I'm handling this. I'm flying out there. And the client was like, well, um, who are we going to call? <laughs> Clearly, like, like, are you going to handle our project and what other projects are you working on? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm handling them all. They're all under my charge. Don't worry. And we're, you know, they're scratching your head going, well, that's like, do the math. That's just not possible. There's not enough hours in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus, you know, a team, the, the teams that did better would be to your point, like where you bring in the, the principal and the more junior staff, they're all in the room. They're all going for the interview. And it's like, whoa, like we've got a team here. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, like talk about, that's a, that's a strong selling feature that you've got a team, we've got someone back you up. We've got a crack. 
we just hired this new landscape architect. We're not even an architecture firm, but we've got a landscape architect. I'm not talking about us, but or this session, but yeah, yeah. When you walk in and go, you know, you hire us, like we just we just picked up this amazing woman. She just came out of this program. She's doing all this award-winning stuff. We're so glad to have her on the team. She's got a couple of years' experience, but boy, is she a good designer. Mm-hmm. But you not worry, because I've got, you know, a thousand years and I can handle it. So you you have the the range and the client would sit there and go, why not? Yeah, because yeah, there's also always like, what if something happens to the principal? Even if they just get the flu for two weeks, like, is the project stopping? Yeah. You know, it's uh, those things. Yeah, it's important to think about. Um, I think we've covered most of the questions I had for you. The last one I have is, if you had one piece of advice for any architecture firm regarding how they market themselves, what would it be? I think it's uh, really people first and be authentic. Like really sell your the identity of, how you solve a problem. Like I'd almost, I think that because it gets back to this conversation, like when a client is going to hire you, you know, it's, it's like whether you're going for a job as a person or, you know, your first job or whether you're going for a major airport, Mm -hmm. you know, when it comes down to the wire, if you know, both your firm and my firm are, no, we both did these great airports, you know, yours might've been in Paris. Mine might've been in Berlin, but when it comes down to it, what's our team and what's our people. So I think really selling, selling the people behind every design. I think that's, that's the greatest asset you can go with. That's a great uh, piece of advice. And I would add to that. Think of every touch point with your potential client as an opportunity to sell, even if you're not saying anything, but just by the way you act. Right. So things as simple as like showing up a few minutes early, um, whatever the case may be, there's so many things you can do, but I think that's a a thing that a lot of people tend to forget. And I have forgotten it in the past too, but I think ultimately people judge you by all those micro kind of touch points that happen throughout the interaction. And when you work on a project that lasts for years, um, you don't necessarily have to maintain the perfect standard because nobody's perfect, but it, it has to be at a certain level throughout. Otherwise, because and there's also the fact that as projects kind of get longer and longer or, or go further and further in time, you have to work harder to maintain the same level of trusts because trust tends to wane a bit over time. So if you don't work extra hard to maintain that trust, that's gonna, that could bite you in the ass too. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's consistency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a perfect way to summarize it, consistency. I think it was this was a great conversation. We went in many different directions, but all kind of somewhat relevant to the topic of the image. So I want to thank you very much for uh, giving some of your time to this podcast and I look forward to the next conversation. I know. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate your authenticity. I appreciate your consistency and your, your reliability. You're very welcome and a bit too kind too, but that's a different conversation. You're doing great work. So thank you. That's an honor to be part of it. It's my pleasure. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.